0: I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 26, as Mr. Al shared earlier. What page did you say that was? No one remembers. 459. Let me pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you, Lord, we are opening your word the bread of life, um, the wellspring that gives us eternal life, Lord, we are coming to your word, desiring to uh, to know the truth of your word, and for our lives to be impacted and transformed, and even guided by your word. And so, Lord, meet us this morning here uh, in in your word and. If there are any things within our spirit that would push back against your word, would you confront those, Father? And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you confront any lie that we would be tempted to believe about our own selves in light of your word? And God, would you strengthen us to respond? Lord, we know in your word you say in Philippians that that all things are at work in our lives, uh, that, that it's according to Your uh, perfect will that You're at work in our lives. And God, that You, um, you by, your, uh, by Your power and by Your will, You strengthen us to walk in accordance with You. And so, Lord, we ask that You would strengthen us this morning. And Father, we pray, I pray, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is The Way of the Righteous. And that's exactly what David is speaking about in Psalm 26. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Maybe we have. Maybe some of us haven't. But I, I tend to think that all of us have at some point, at one point or another, we've all been falsely accused of something. It looks like, this is the way it looks in my house, something goes missing. Maybe it's a charger for some digital device, all right? And one of it's, it belongs to one of the children, and so the other child comes and says, so-and-so has misplaced no, so-and-so has taken my charger and hid it from me. And so at that point, the inquisition begins. Well, how do you know that this person took... Your charger and so on and so forth, and finally, it, it normally boils down to everybody comes into the kitchen and no one can hold a straight face because everyone thinks that the other person did it, and it just kind of gets comical. Uh, that's kind of a light way to uh, to think about false accusations. The most recent time that this happens, it turned happened. It turns out that no one actually took the charger for the digital device, but it was on a dresser uh, where. Uh, the other person just did not look, all right, but there was a false accusation that went out, right? False accusations those false accusations really can be detrimental in our lives can 't they? I mean, they can really just they can wipe us out. False accusations I think about well, false accusations can do great damage and While we don't really know the context of this psalm, it could be any number of situations in David's life, it's clear that false accusations have come against King David. And it's also clear that these false accusations are coming from wicked people. And so this psalm, I think on one hand, it invites us to take this introspective look into our lives, but I think it also speaks about the outward lifestyle of God's people. In the New Testament, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 15, 1 15 and 16, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Here is God's standard for his people, holiness. Paul, in the New Testament, he continually exhorts believers throughout many of his epistles with kind of the same truth about the outward lifestyle of the believer. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Or in Colossians uh, 1.10, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Or in Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or... Second, uh, Second Thessalonians 2 12, First Thessalonians 2.12. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. You see, the outward lifestyle of the believer is significant. And so it's, on, it's really on two tiers this morning that I, I want us to find application. One, it's the introspective and the reflective look in our own lives. But then secondly, there's this Outward living, where our lives are giving testimony to God's goodness and testimony that we, in fact, are who we say we are, Christians. Transformed men and women by the grace of God. So David's prayer and profession is one that I think is fitting for our lives today. And so we see this morning, what I want us to see this morning through the text, is that God's gracious redemption through Christ empowers believers to pray confidently and to live righteously. So first this morning, we see those who walk with integrity have confidence to approach God in prayer. We see this in verse 1. This is David's prayer. And I, I realize that we haven't read the text yet. So let me pause and let us read the text. Follow along as I read. Vindicate me, O Lord. For I've walked in my integrity. And I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord. And try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Those who walk with integrity have confidence to approach God in prayer. Look at David's prayer, how it begins in verse one. What does he say? Vindicate me. Vindicate me, O Lord. This is a bold prayer of faith, and it's evidenced by the reasonings he gives for why he can pray to God. Vindicate me. Look at what he says For I've walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. In other words, I've not wavered in my trust, I've not slipped. David's prayer for vindication is directed to God, and he calls on God to exercise his authoritative power in his circumstances. And by doing so, he appeals to his own integrity. Not perfection, but he appeals to a blameless life, one that is above reproach. He's saying to God, God, my motives are pure. The word for waiver, it's an interesting word. It, it, it here it illustrates a narrow mountain path. And his claim is, my feet haven't slipped off the path. When Tara and I were on the mission trip that we went on back in, back in 2005 to Southeast Asia, we were handing out the Gospel of Luke to the Nosu people, the unreached people group. And in order to go and to do this, I mean, people are unreached because they want to be. I mean, they're in remote areas. And so we were trekking through the foothills of the Himalayas, about eight to 10,000 feet. And all we had to go on was a map that had been downloaded with GPS coordinates into a handheld GPS that we had uh, where a missionary had walked this trek. We didn't know anything about it. And so uh, there's us and one other couple together, and we're walking through um, the foothills, and uh, we come across some pretty hairy places and there were some places that we came across where our backs were up against the rock and literally we're doing like this and we're looking down as the mountainside just it falls away below us and there is nothing there now we had one son at the time Isaac uh, who was back with Tara's sister and as we were walking uh, along this ledge it was imperative that our feet didn't slip Tara and I would I mean we were all talking be be careful you know we were making sure that we were taking each step really carefully but we had to be vigilant with every step the peril of falling loomed before us and so we had to be vigilant we had to watch each step that we took and I think this is what David is saying regarding the walk of integrity this is the picture that he wants us to have, that he wants God's people to have. It's a narrow, slippery path requiring vigilance with every step. Those who walk with integrity have confidence to approach God in prayer. Believer, no, I want us to know that it's, it's possible. It's even desirable that we would come before the Lord not with defeat and moral failure, but with lives of integrity. Having walked, having trusted, and having not slipped, we must guard each step and come to Him before we waver, not after we waver. Let us come to God before we waver, before we slip. One way that we come to God is through reading and studying, memorizing His Word. Because it's through God's word that we're strengthened and and, and it's through God's word that we're kept from falling in sin. David prayed in Psalm 119, 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that what? I might not sin against you. In Psalm 119, 105, he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17 for his disciples, Lord Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see, church, when we walk in the way of integrity, we have confidence to approach God in prayer. And we have confidence to know that he listens to his people. As we walk in his word, we have confidence to know that we're walking in God's way. Jesus demonstrated this when he taught the disciples to pray. He taught them, pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Hebrews 4.16, the author of Hebrews, the writer, he he says, based on the high priesthood of Jesus and, and Christ's solidarity with us, that he has suffered in the same way that we suffer, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Walking in integrity gives us confidence to approach God in prayer. But listen, walking with integrity gives us confidence as well to invite refinement for growth and holiness. David uses a language of refinement asking God to prove me. Look at verse 2. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart. Test my mind. Notice what David is doing. In order to substantiate his claim to integrity, he calls to God and he invites God to look within, to look beyond the outward actions and to see the internal seed of his heart and his motives. This refinement language, it's asking for God to do this work of purification, right? We're aware of what refining precious metal looks like. The heat is added to it so that it melts and the impurities bubble to the top and then they're skimmed off and then it's cooled and then it's done again and, and the impurities again bubble to the top and then it's scooped and it's cleaned off and then it, it's purified through the heat. And so David says, prove me, try me, test my heart and test my mind because David's aware that God sees differently than man sees, and that a person who appears upright externally might not truly be upright before the Lord. And I think we're wise when we view our lives similarly. We too, in the midst of cries for vindication, feeling as though we've been wronged, we must take a reflective and an introspective look at our own lives. I think Paul models this in 1 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. When he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And he challenges the church similarly in Second Corinthians thirteen five, when he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Are do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? It was through the process of introspection and refinement that David would grow in holiness. And it's through the process of introspection and refinement that believers grow in holiness. When hardships and trials and and accusations come against us, realize that it just might be a refining tool in the hand of God to bring about greater humility and holiness in our lives. Church, we must must be careful to examine our lives before our Heavenly Father. We must examine with reflection and with introspection. David's done this. When he walks in integrity, he has confidence. Don't you see this? He has confidence to approach God in prayer and also to invite this refinement in his life. So believer, can we confidently call out to God and say, Vindicate me, O God. Can you confidently say to God, can you you say with integrity to God, examine me, O Lord? There are areas even now that flood our minds where we need to repent before the Lord, ask for His strength. Do I want to submit to this reality that God already knows my heart and my mind? Just being transparent and open when I say, examine my heart and my mind? I'm saying, God, reveal to me the weakness in my own flesh. Make me holier. It's a hard thing to invite refinement in our lives. But David demonstrates a great trust in God that even the difficulty of refinement is good when God is the author of it. Even the difficulty of refinement in our lives is good when God... Authors it. Because it produces holiness. And this is God's command to his people. Be holy because I'm holy. Believer, are you striving for holiness? Are you you reaching for that daily? Secondly, righteous living is characterized in verses 3 through 8. First, by loyalty to God. We see this in verse 3. He says... For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. This is that verse that Mr. Al pointed out earlier in our service. Righteousness is nearly equivalent to holiness. We heard that this morning in our Sunday school study. It encompasses really conforming our lives to God's divine law. Righteous living, then, is when we turn our affections from delighting in worldliness to delighting in God. So that in the course of our daily lives, we walk in God's ways and we, we are in a right relationship with Him. And so verse 3, this word for steadfast love. I don't often share Hebrew or Greek words, but this one's important. It's the word chesed. And it's the word for God's covenant love. When we read about God's covenant with His, Old Testament, with his people in the Old Testament, He, he uses this word. And so this steadfast love that David is speaking about, it is the faithful, faithful covenant of God with his people. He's speaking about God's faithfulness. And David affirms his loyalty to God saying, I set my eyes on your covenant love. And and he's saying here, I walk about in your faithfulness all day long. Here's what he realizes. David realizes that, that God, if it, if, it, if it were not for your faithfulness to me, I would, have been, I would have been doomed long before now. He's saying that God's faithful loving kindness shapes and sets the course for his life. This is the hope of the believer. It's for this reason that David won't join in the way of the wicked, and it's for this reason that he can approach God confidently in prayer. David's conviction is that when God sets his course, he also gives protection. And he gives the strength needed to continue walking righteously before him. Church, this ought to be our conviction. When God has set our course, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us is living within, it is God who empowers us and strengthens us to live for him, to live righteously for him. So it is for the believer our righteousness is, It doesn't hinge on our own ability get this, it doesn't hinge on, our own, hinge on our own ability to keep God's law, but upon Christ's finished work through the cross. This is ultimately what our righteousness hinges upon. This is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so on the one hand, it speaks of this imputed righteousness. That is, Christ has fulfilled God's divine law, keeping it perfectly without sin, and he's offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. And so Jesus, who knew no sin, took upon himself our our sin he suffered god's wrath by being condemned to death through the cross and then he rose triumphant over sin and the grave ascended to the father and then sent his holy spirit down to indwell his people this is the righteous act of god to bring about salvation for his people and it's through this process that we are secured And we have Christ's righteousness in this transaction where He took upon Himself our sin and He gave us His righteousness so that we can, in a big sense, stand before God as holy and as righteous who are covered by the blood, the sacrifice of Christ and what He has done. So in one sense, we're righteous before God as new creations in Christ. But in another sense, get this, in another sense the believer through the empowering presence of the holy spirit chooses to live righteously before god we live righteously before god so the challenge here righteous living is characterized by loyalty to god is for us believer Understanding that we are righteous in God's presence, but also understanding that we're empowered by the Spirit to live righteously before God. The, the challenge here, believer, is that we would be loyal to God. Be loyal to God. Believer, be loyal to God. This is what David is saying. I've been loyal God. Verse 3, right? For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I, I walk in your faithfulness. I go about walking in you all the day. Oh, God, make us true. Oh, God, make us instruments to be used for your glory. Use my life, use our lives as a testimony of your grace and bring sinners to you through our witness. Let this be our prayer, church. Let this be our prayer, your prayer, believer, as you go into the day. So not only is righteous living characterized by loyalty to God, It's also characterized by separation from the ungodly. We see this in verses 4 and 5. He says, I don't sit with men of falsehood. Those who are empty and idolatrous. To sit with them would be to intentionally make plans and conspire together to carry out those plans. And he says, I don't consort with hypocrites. Those who are liars and deceivers. The imagery goes from sitting to walking when he says, I don't consort with them. He's saying, I don't take part in carrying out their wicked schemes. And in verse 5, he elaborates on the point of verse 4 with stronger language when he says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. The righteous one will hate that which wickedness stands for. He says, I repudiate it. When they devise, this is where they devised their ways to exploit others for their own gain. This is where they devised and craft their plan for wickedness. And he says, these are, these are wicked and faithless people. He says, I won't sit with the wicked. Because it would be opposite of walking in God's ways. Because the wicked opposed God's truth and aligned themselves against God. David's way can't be with those who deny God because he's bound to God's covenant. And in one sense, the picture given here is a stark contrast between two communities, isn't it? We've got one which is the community of the world. They both have this familial aspect. So we've got one that is a community of God's people. We would call this the church. And we have the other who's a community of the wicked. And they represent really two diametrically opposed world views. To this Jesus says that we can't be part of both in fact in Luke 16 13 he speaks to this mindset no servant can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other and here he's saying you can't serve God and money speaking of both Paul says that we were all once part of this community the community of the wicked which is ruled by Satan himself in Ephesians 2 1 through 3 it's a familiar text for us And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now those who believe, those who have believed upon Christ have been brought into a new community created by God for declaring His glory and declaring His fame in the world. And we are to bring others into this community. And so to the singles, I I would say just as a point of application, this is why missionary dating is wrong. This is why you've got to be so careful because it, it incorrectly aligns the believer with the world. To our youth who... Are tuning in right now, I think, we, we must be careful what circles we run in. We must be careful who we align our lives with, who we hang out with. But this is really for all of us, isn't it? We must be careful where we sit and who we sit with. I'm not speaking against befriending those who don't know Christ. In fact, I think that's what we ought to be doing. But I'm speaking with reference to our need to guard our lives because it's a slippery path. We must walk with our integrity. Righteous living is also characterized by sanctification to delight in God's presence. We see this in verses 6 through 8. David claims that which the wicked and the unbelieving world cannot. In verse 6, he says, I wash my hands. In innocence, And I go around your altar, O Lord. Look, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. David's saying, this keeps my life in check. Here's what I do. Here's the right perspective as I approach God in worship. Prayer, proclamation of God's goodness, thanksgiving, and praise. David's made his prayer known to God, and then he quickly proclaims with a vocal testimony of what God has done. He proclaims it in the midst of the assembly. This is one of the ways that we give glory to God, church. We do it by telling others about what God has done in our lives. Are you giving vocal testimony about what God is doing in your life? If you're not, why not? Is it because you're not looking for ways that God is working in your life? Is it because we're not asking God to do these great works and are believing, having confidence that God hears us and that he wants to work? Like David, this keeps our life in check. When we meet together, let us be ready to give vocal testimony and praise about what God has done in our lives and then even to cry out corporately for deliverance as we've done this morning for fatty and for... The circumstance and situation that's happening right now, even at Albertsons. David moves from a personal experience to telling of God's great acts of deliverance in the second part of verse 7, and telling of your wondrous deeds. So does does this describe our worship? Do we gather with this attitude in our minds to proclaim the testimony of God's great work in our lives? We need to. We need to. Verse 8 describes the place of assembly for God's people. And this is probably my favorite verse in the entire psalm. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This word habitation, it's the word for refuge. God's presence is a refuge for the weary. It's a place of protection and safety for the righteous. And he says, I love the dwelling place of your glorious presence. It's because God's presence among his people reaffirms our confidence and our trust in him. And David's saying, I run to this place. I need to be reaffirmed of my confidence and my trust in you. This is why the writer of Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider How to stir up one another to love and good works. Listen, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the New Testament church fits this description of God's glorious dwelling place. This is the promise of John 14 where God the Father and God the Son promised to make their abode with the believer through God the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, growing in sanctification increases our desire and ability to delight in God's presence We experience God's presence in our fellowship with one another. That's an important part of what it means to be in the body of Christ, to come together, to worship together, to encourage one another through what God is doing in our lives, and to share these needs that we have with one another so that we might intercede on one another's behalf. Righteous living is characterized by loyalty to God, by separation from the world, and by sanctification to delight in God's presence. But thirdly and finally this morning, the righteous hope in God alone for redemption. In verses 9 through 12, we see this first. David is praying, guard me from the outcome of sinners. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. In concert with his statements about the character and activity of the wicked, His chief concern is that his soul not be swept away with the sinner. Listen, this is the simple truth and hope of the gospel. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this really identifies all of us, right? Everyone, he says all, he means everyone. Not just a few, but every one of us, all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And because of this sin in our lives, our redemption would be hopeless, or is hopeless, outside of Christ. He identifies humanity under the same bondage to sin, all of us. And in Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death. There's a payment for the sin that we have in our lives. And that payment is eternal condemnation. It is suffering, the wrath of God. But there's good news in Romans 6.23. Though we are all under bondage to sin, even as Ephesians 2.1 says, though we are all under bondage to sin, the hope and the truth of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, we have this free gift offered. And so he says the wages of sin is death, the payment for it, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, there is a free gift and it is eternal life. And for all who come to Christ and believe upon the work that He has done through the cross to forgive us of our sin and to give us of His righteousness, all who place faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ have been made righteous before God and have been empowered to live a righteous life. And have hope for redemption. This is called grace. For we don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. And that's exactly what David prays. Look in verses 11 and 12. Extend your grace toward me. Verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. God, I need your redemption. God, I need your grace. My sin is so great that I can never keep your law. My sin is so great that I stand condemned before you. And I need your grace. If that's your cry this morning, I want to let you know that there's room and there's hope in the cross of Christ for your salvation if that's where you're at this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you that you can actually do that. You can confess your sin before Him. You can do it right where you're sitting this morning in a few moments. Even now, you can confess your sin before the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, and believe in him. If that's a direction that you're leaning this morning, that and, and you want more information about it, I, I want to be, I'm willing and able and would love to speak more with you about what it means. To believe on Jesus Christ and to surrender your life to him. You see, the believer's life is different because of Christ in us. God has made us new creations in Christ. And David knows that be it not for God's grace and covenant love, his redemption would be hopeless. And it's it's similar for the believer. Be it not for God's new covenant through Christ, our redemption would be hopeless. All who believe upon Christ have been redeemed from sin by His blood. To be redeemed means that we're twice His. He made us. And then He bought us with His life. Do you know the redemption that comes through Christ alone? Are you living, believer, are you living with integrity, pursuing holiness? Are you walking in righteousness, guarding your steps and choosing loyalty to Christ? The Holy Spirit is in you. He empowers you. This morning we're going to sing, Because He Lives. And I want to challenge you to reflect upon the words of the song. Think upon the truth of God's word and respond to the Lord as He leads you. If you need someone to pray, I'll be down here in the front, and I'd be more than willing to pray with you. Maybe you want to come and kneel down at the steps like we offered earlier just to confess something before God. You feel free to do that. Or maybe this morning for you, it just it looks like sitting, sitting right where you are and responding to the Lord. Finally, maybe it looks for you like just crying out in praise to God for the way that He's working in your life. You respond this morning as the Lord leads. Would you pray with me? Father, We thank you for the hope and the truth of your word, and we ask that you would strengthen each one in here this morning to respond as you would lead them. And Father, do the work in our lives that you can only do by your Holy Spirit and empower us to respond to your your hand at work in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand this morning?